But I want to start with something that happened uh, a little while back in February. The date was February 22nd, 1980, uh, when the U.S. Olympic hockey team uh, defeated uh, the Soviet Union in the Lake Placid Olympics. That day has been called the miracle on ice. Sports Illustrated has called it the greatest athletic moment of the 20th century. Uh, It shouldn't have happened. The Soviet Union had won six of the seven previous Olympic gold medals going into that game. Except for one upset in 1960, they had, they had won them all. And since 1960, their record in the Olympics was 27-1-1. and They had outscored their opponents throughout the Olympics 175-44. to Their team was almost all veteran players. Some of them were some of the best players, hockey players in the world. Some of them were active duty military playing hockey. In contrast, the average age of Team USA was 21 years old. They were right out of college or playing college, many from the University of Minnesota. Of the team, of the U.S. Olympic hockey team of 1976, only one player would return to play in 1980. Otherwise, the entire team was new. And they won. Four to three. And they went on to win the gold. Now, the game itself is special. I mean, it was its special in its own right. I mean, it's a David and Goliath moment in its own right. But it's made all the more meaningful by the fact that it's occurring in the middle of the Cold War conflict. That the United States and the USSR were pit against one another in the Cold War. And that this... This was, the ice was the battlefield in some ways. There was a proxy war being waged in the Olympics. At this time, in fact, the Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan during this, and the United States had boycotted the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. So for this to happen, it had overtones of the great conflict that was happening around the globe. Witnesses of the time say that after the game, the, in the U.S. locker room, the team spontaneously broke out in God Bless America. Isn't that neat? That's what it, mat- it mattered like back then. It's as if that game, as much as impressive as it was, was part of for a moment, was part of this big conflict. I'm going to ask this morning that when we read Matthew, you would, you would look at it the same way. Every year, annually, we read the, Christ, the birth of Christ. And so I imagine many, if not all of us, are somewhat familiar with the details. But most often we... we we take, I think, we take and receive the event or the moment, the birth of Christ as its event, and we enjoy that. This morning, what I, I want to do is call us beyond it, to transcend, allow that story to point to the greater conflict that it's part of. That, that this moment is a miracle moment in its own right. It's, it's worthy of just looking at the details of the birth in its own right, but it, it's more than that. It's 
It's part of a much bigger thing. And that's what I would like to do this morning is, is to spend time uh, at, at one level above the detail. Maybe just looking at the, the significant overtones of the birth of Christ and of the way of Christ and the way the story is coming out. The, the, the way the Lord tells the story, he's so good, God is so good that his history is always poetic. And so I just, I want us to spend time looking at the way he tells the story and the way he presents the characters as though it were part of our larger conflict, which it is. You might uh, call this sermon a Christmas according to King Herod. We're going we're gonna to look at Christmas uh, based upon how King Herod receives it and, and compare that to Christ. Okay. Before I read, I want to explain a little bit about why King Herod. I'd like you this morning to consider King Herod as a type of character. Certainly he's a real historical character. There's no doubt about that. But this morning I want you to think of him as a stand-in for Satan. He's a type of Satan. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt was a type of Satan. Herod serves very effectively to show the nature of the enemy and the way the enemy views the advent of Jesus. And so it's, it's with, as we kind of turn to Matthew 2, let's, let's do it with this perspective of, of Herod being a, a type of Christ. In fact, Jesus even refers to Satan, I'm Herod being a type of Satan, Jesus refers to Satan as having been a prince of the world. That's the language and John, Jesus talks about Satan as a prince of the world or a ruler of the world. And, and that's, what, that's what Herod's doing. And like Satan, Herod is a pretender to a throne. Herod acts like he has a right to the throne that he doesn't really. Herod was not, Herod was not even Jewish. He was Idumean. He was Arabic. But he claims the throne. Most of what we know about King Herod was from the historian Josephus. He records that Herod had as many genealogies as he could destroyed so as to sever the Jewish hope that the Messiah would be traceable to David because he is pretending to the throne. He is in almost every way a prince of this world and he's dead. Let's read uh, Matthew 2, verses 1 to 4. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. I'd like us to notice that the advent of Christ is a very real threat to Herod. It says in verse 3, when he heard this, he was troubled, 
and all of Jerusalem with him. The birth of Christ represents a very real threat to the prince of this world. Herod's thinking, well, if, if he's the king of the Jews, what does that make me? When we come to Christmas, we're invited into season's tidings, right? Joy. It's a season of giving and of love and of kindness, generosity. This, I think, would be, uh, even as a Christian community, we, we will sometimes dumb the message of Christmas down to this level to make it receivable to our neighbors and friends, and I understand that. But that's not what, that can't be what Christmas is about. What king is troubled by that? What? You don't put somebody on the cross for that, for being too kind or too generous. The issue, what really is at stake, is the fact that there are competing claims to this earth. That's what's at stake, and it shows up in the story with the concern of King Herod, but it shows up in the greater story with the reality that the the advent or the coming of Christ on earth represents a very real threat to the prince of this age and this kingdom. In other words, Jesus is not coming simply to display love. And Jesus is not coming simply to display generosity or simply to display any any good virtue of humanity. That's not why Jesus is simply coming. Jesus is coming to lay claim on his kingdom. That's what he's coming to do. To the prince of this world, it's a move of insurrection. Isaiah 9 says, this is a familiar passage, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That's what Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to lay claim. He's coming to take ground. At an individual level, maybe we can appreciate this the most. It would be wrong to think that Jesus... The message of Christ is here to bring, to make you a more loving person. Or to take you and just improve you, right? Put a smile on you. Make you more generous. Make you more more warm-hearted. That would be uh, to, I think, sorely underestimate why Jesus has come. Jesus has not come simply to make you happier, Jesus has come to lay claim on your soul. We just sing a hymn. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power. While we were gone astray. That's the good tidings of comfort and joy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a better version of yourself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has become your king. And he has saved your soul. And he has rescued you from the prince of this world. 
That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to someone who's received the gospel, it's blessings to hear that. It feels good. It's tidings of comfort and joy. To someone who's bumping up against the gospel, the idea of, of the Lord laying claim on you is troubling. It's a good litmus test. We don't want to be lost in the season's greetings to miss the good tidings. Christ has come to save and rescue people into his ever-increasing, never-ending kingdom. And that is a real threat to the God of this age, the prince of this age. Let me just read another passage here. Let's read five and six. This is, a, this is an aside, but let's see what we do with it. They told him. So this is, Herod says to the priests, why didn't I know about this? You never told me about a king. And they say, all right. And they, they say, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. I think it is interesting that the very same king who would work to have destroyed the genealogical records in the libraries of Jerusalem would be surrounded by priests and scribes. It reminds me Just if we're going to examine, in light of what is Christ coming into, he's coming into a world where the prince of this world does not reign by the destruction of religion. He typically reigns by the co-opting of religion. Herod has negotiated peace with the church at the time. That's what he's done. He's bought them off with the temple. Herod has two great fixtures that he's most known for. He was Herod the Great, by the way. The reason he was great is because he was a voracious builder. If you wanted to get the word great on your name, you built back then. And so he built many, many things. But his two most notable accomplishments, the first was the city of Caesarea. He built a city. Who builds a city anymore? He built a city. A huge city with a big port. Sets on the coast. And he named it after Caesar. Caesarea with a C. That was his first one. And the second one he built was the temple to the Jews. And do you see, like, out of both sides of the mouth in that? City for Caesar, a temple for the Jews. You know what he put on the front of the temple? He put the Roman emblem, the eagle, on the front of the temple. He's co-opting it. He's negotiating it in. I say that because it's not as though we're safe from the enemy because we're in these illustrious cinder block walls here. That doesn't make us safe. And it's not as though the only plan and scheme of the prince of this world is to destroy the church. Sometimes the prince of this world is way more effective by co-opting the church. And we have to see that this has been done on occasions like this, like Christmas. I mean, look out, watch every commercial you can find. I mean, it's, it's largely 
largely been co-opted. And it seems here that the priests and scribes have helped them do it. I, I have to wonder if they've helped them do it. I, I want to say something tough, like if I was a priest, you wouldn't find me hanging out with King Herod. But I don't know. I don't know what... When you're co-opted, you sometimes don't know it. I will say this, and I, I'm not going to drill this point hard. It is an aside, after all. I, I don't want to drill this hard, but... I can't help, when I read this prophecy from Micah, verse 6, this prophecy from Micah, it, it evokes in me, uh, and then I go back in Micah, and I read the whole prophecy, I say, it's been co-opted. You see this, this prophecy, O you Bethlehem, land of Judah, by, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is Micah 5.2a. It's not even a whole verse. It's the data, right? Herod wants to know where is the child going to be born? They give him the data. They don't give him the hope behind the data. The hope is 5.2b, 5.3, and 5.4. I'll read it for you here. Okay, this is, this is the reading out of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's what you've heard already, right? That's 5.2a. It's 5.2b, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and then there will be peace. That's the hope. You know, I think there's a way that the prince of this world works even in houses of worship to extract the hope from the liturgy. There's hope in this story. It didn't just happen. There's hope in it. All right, let's look at the next section here. Chapter 2, verse 13. So I skipped the wise men, but they came. And then they went and saw Jesus. They bowed down. They worshiped. They gave their gifts. And then being warned by an angel in a dream, they went home by a different route because they sensed that they were being hitched tricked by Herod. We arrive at verse 13. Speaking of them, wise men, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by the night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I want us to notice the irony of power in this narrative. You have Herod the Great, the only Herod. There's four Herods throughout the generations of the scriptures. He's the only Herod who's great, 
right? You have Herod the Great, who has might and power and influence and wealth, and he's got the wickedness to use them, the willingness to use them. He will run over people. He was a historically wicked man. And Christ, the Lord makes sure that the narrative displays that Christ enters this environment, enters this world where that king knows. I mean, don't you think it was in the providence of God not to haul the wise men through the court of Herod? I mean, the Lord is engineering an environment where you and I have to deal with the fact that he's given the prince of this world the tip off that the Messiah is helplessly born into it. I mean, Christ and Herod have very different, they're just telling very different stories right now. Different ways of influence. I mean, how does Christ influence right now? You could say, well, he doesn't, he's a baby. I'd say, well, what does, the, this is, what does Herod have available to him? And what does Christ have available to him? I think that if we're going to rise above the story and look at this, I think we should note that Herod has everything that the world would have to offer. He's got all the different instruments of power that governments use in our age, our visible world, to make things happen. He's got every lever you might imagine to pull. That's what Herod. And over here, the only thing Jesus is, is totally dependent upon his father. That's it. And he survives. Totally dependent on his father. I mean, Joseph does a really good job standing in for the Lord here. Jesus, at this moment in his life, has nothing at all to commend himself except for his heavenly father. And that is enough. If you think of the ministry of Christ, I mean, take that principle right here, but just think of the ministry of Christ. How often does Jesus, he never speaks about himself apart from his father. He says, the only things I'm saying to you are the things that the father has told me to say to you. And I've said everything that the father has told me to say to you. And there's nothing that I've said that the father hasn't told me to say to you. He speaks like almost in a roundabout way to make you aware that he's totally merged and dependent upon the Lord. He says, the things that I do are the things that the Father has asked me to do, and I don't do the things he hasn't asked me to do. So that you know that he's unified with the Lord, totally dependent upon the Lord. These who are with me are the ones who the Father has given to me, he says. And there's others too that I have to go get. Why? Because the Father deems him to have them. Do you see... Do you see the way in Christ's adult life where we would say, well, he has all these other instruments of power. Well, you know what? He doesn't really use them. He still displays the very same humble dependence upon his father. How often in the New Testament, if, if, if you would consider yourself a student of the New Testament or if you've read it and you're familiar with it, how often does he... I want to say, uh, kind of the juvenile guy in me, sometimes Jesus almost would wuss out 
of an opportunity to make himself known. Like I'm read the word. I'm like, ha ha, this is when he shouldn't. It says in Jesus, knowing that it was not the right time. Excused himself for a more appropriate time. And it's part of me, the part of me who's enslaved to the world's instruments of power go, ah, man. I was hoping for fire from the sky or something. But Jesus so carefully shows dependence on the Father and a willingness not to play that game. Not to do it. The world would call it weak. That's what the world would say. The world, the world would look at the nature of Christ and say this is weak. To not play, and the, the church is so tempted, and I'm gonna use the church as the fall guy for each one of us. We're so tempted to adopt and mimic the methods and, the, and these levers, these ways of influence, the ways of influence of the world. We're so tempted to adopt those on behalf of the Lord so that we might achieve godly ends. But when we adopt those things, we destroy the very way of God. Though it's the way of God that makes the difference. We want to be efficient like the outside world. We want to be corporate like the outside world. We want to be attractive. We want to be high tech. We want to be, we want to have it together like the outside world. We want to be beautiful like the outside world. How can you be a beautiful church and, and still reach out to the weak and the hurting and the lost? You cannot. How can you be an efficient church and still care for people who by their nature are not efficient? You cannot. How can we show the success of the church if we adopt the world's standards, which would be kind of glossy and wealthy and high speed and bright colors? How can we do all of that when the Lord is calling us to the meek? Just the way, the way of God and the way of the prince of this earth cannot be more different. They're as different as a king and a helpless baby. But the way of God is not weak. Herod is dead and Christ is alive. The way of God is not weak. It is not weak to forgive someone that is not weak. It is not weak to turn the other cheek. It is not weak to say, I'm sorry. It is not weak to confess your sins. It is not weak to stand up under persecution. Those things are strong, and that is the way of God. His way is different, and it requires dependence upon him. It requires the fruits of the Spirit is what it requires. Not the things of this world, but love, joy, peace, and patience, and all of those things. It doesn't require the armor and the weapons and the military of this world. It requires a breastplate of righteousness and a belt of truth and a helmet of salvation and a shield of faith. It requires those things. That's the way of God. And they are as different from one another as a king on his throne and a baby. They are not weak. They appear weak. And we as Christians, as followers of Christ, need not to be tempted to look the way they want us to look if we want to offer them the very different way of God.
show you one more look here. Let's look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older, old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The way of the prince of this age takes life. That is not the way of God. The enemy takes life. You know, as I was studying for this, what I found was already scholars, religious scholars, okay, people who I guess would technically be on our team, look at this passage and they start to diminish the massacre of Herod. One of them, some have said, well, this may only be like a dozen children. Others have said, well, we have no historical account that this happened. To which I think, well, we have one. And almost anything we know of Herod the Great comes from Josephus the historian anyway. So as most we could have one. In other words, if Josephus didn't say it, it must have not have happened. I'll tell you what Josephus did say. Herod killed his favorite wife out of paranoia and all of her sons, all of his sons, from her. He killed others of his sons. He's killed, this is how you know the way of the enemy. His home is, is as destructive as what he's done outside of it. The death he wreaks in Bethlehem has been wreaked inside his home by his own hands. It's part of his nature to take life. God gives life. Herod, when he was about to die, he knew that Judea despised him. And Josephus writes that he had his family, uh, well, he had the prominent leaders in the towns and families arrested and put in a hippodrome like a stadium. And he, his last will and testament to his family, among other things, was, on the day I die, I want all of these people massacred so that all of Jerusalem mourns at my death. Because he knew otherwise they would party. He knew it. So to know that about Herod and to say, I don't know if, we have no record that this actually happened. This is wholly in keeping with the nature of the prince of this earth. May have only been a dozen kids. Yeah, I looked it up. There are 15 boys to and under in our church. We look at moments like this. Sometimes we think this is like barbarism of antiquity. I just want you to show, show that the, the prince of this world is still alive and kicking, and his ways are still, just a week ago, 132 children were killed in a school in Pakistan. Just a week ago. By the hand of the prince of this age. Our culture of abortion in this country 
hundreds of thousands of children every year. You look at the, the few data points that we know of the African continent have to do with the kidnapping of children or the recruiting of children into an army. I'm just, the, kid, the prince of this world is still here. And his ways are precisely the same. We're no less barbaric than this. We may be numb, but not less barbaric. This is not the way of God. Jesus Christ came to give life, not to take it. It's not the way of my prince. He came to give it. He said, I lay down my life willingly. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. He said, this is love. That while we, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gift of God. The gift of God is life. God has come so that we might have life and have it to the full. Christ himself said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. At one level, this story is an event. It's a moment. It's a great moment. It's a miracle moment. You read the details and the story and the virgin birth and the angelic involvement and Joseph and Mary and the wise men, and you go, this is just a miracle. It's a miracle. But this is part of a much larger conflict. He's rescued us from Satan's power while we were gone astray. Good tidings of comfort and joy in that. It's my hope and prayer that as we uh, process Christmas this year, once again, you know, repetition has its own danger, that we would remember the great struggle and that God has come to put an end to that prince with Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for all the ways you are not like the prince of this world. We thank you that your way is not his way. We thank you that you bring life that you would desire that all would know you, Lord. That none should perish. Father, we lift up before you not simply our church, but those who we love and who we're going to spend Christmas with, Lord. And Father, we place before you, especially in families where the faith is mixed, not all agreed upon, not all in the same place. Father, we lay at your feet the difficult challenge of having this good tiding of great comfort and joy in us uh, and yet being wise in the way it's shared. Lord, we, we say your ways are not our ways. Lord, we were born in this world and we know the ways of the prince of this world. Lord, I pray that the wisdom of the spirit would come in the homes Lord, I lift up specifically those who this, this morning are going to be challenged this Christmas season, maybe in a household that doesn't have their faith, doesn't know you, Lord, and that distinct feeling like they'll never hear it from me, not in my hometown. 
I lift them up to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you for the humble way you came to show us that we, the kingdom is not successful by the might and the power of the hands of men. It's powerful and successful because of its dependent on the Father. Lord, we pray that in the spirit you would give us this new way, this way of life, this way that is forgiving and gracious and peaceful and generous and kind and that turns the cheek and walks the extra mile and gives the sandals and the cloak and gives forgiveness 70 times seven, Lord. Make us so countercultural in the ways of Christ that his reign, his claim would be gained. Pray this in Jesus' name.